Well, good afternoon and welcome to this afternoon's Planet Talks here at WOM Adelaide 2014. I'm Bernie Hobbs, I'm from the ABC's Science Unit and I'm absolutely rapt to be here up on stage where the fans are, uh, as well as where our speakers are this afternoon to, I think lead is probably an exaggeration of what I'll be doing because I don't imagine that any of our three guests here this afternoon are going to need any leading in uh, getting their words out and their thoughts heard this afternoon. Our topic for today's Planet Talks is why and how the law and legislation must tackle climate change. So none of the do we need to do anything, yes we need to, law and legislation as the tools that we're going to use, why they must be the tools that we're going to use to tackle climate change. And joining me up here in the comfort of the not quite air conditioned but very salubrious stage, um, people who are familiar to you all, Tim Flannery, well known. <laughs> author, writer, activist, scientist and all-round crowd pleaser, uh, former Commissioner of the Climate Commission, current head of the Climate Council. Yeah, I know, 1.3 million in a few days, not bad Australia, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> um, in our middle position over here is Polly Higgins, who's possibly less well known to the audience than our other two speakers. Mm. Unless they've read her books, which I think a few of you may have. Polly's behind the movement to have ecocide declared an international crime, and we'll be hearing all about that this afternoon. Polly's also the, uh, the chief executive officer of the Earth Community Trust and the chairwoman, chairwoman of Eradicating um, Ecocide Global Initiative. And uh, so Polly's a barrister who's basically made her mission to make ecocide an international crime. So, Polly Higgins. And I'm making the most of the introductions because I really do fear I won't get a word in edgewise once they start speaking. Um, our final guest this afternoon, uh, also no stranger to WOMAD, to Australians, Peter Garrett, the man who's come... <laughs> activist, musician, legally trained, politician and finally minister and uh, now not lady of leisure but that other thing yes uh, gentleman of leisure just in the uh, in between jobs I think they call it at the moment uh, we might hear something about Peter's plans a bit later on but I really want to start I don't want to start with ecocide we'll get to that in just a minute because I want us to look first of all at what the situation is with law and legislation how's it performing in terms of um, of, of benefiting the environment, of ensuring uh, ecosystem safety and, and, um, and proliferation. Uh, so can we start, um, or maybe we'll start with you, Peter, I think. I mean, you've been, as I said, you've been on all sides of it. You've, you've campaigned, you've, you've been a minister, you've been inside and outside government for legislation. Tell us how you think law and legislation are working to tackle climate change. Are they effective? Uh, Bernie, the, the short answer is that the laws are not equipped to deal with the big challenges that we have with climate change and climate change impacts, even though we do have, by national and international standards, pretty good national laws under the Environment Protection, Biodiversity and Conservation Act. Unfortunately, and it won't surprise people for me to say it, but I guess I should just get it out of the way straight up, um, we need those national laws. Uh, they need people to really support them and they need ministers... Uh, and governments to take strong, positive decisions about the environment with them. And at the moment, I think what we're seeing is the laws that are there nationally uh, are being devolved in, in their strength. Uh, there's a 
there's, a, there's an idea from Mr Abbott and, and others that it should go back to the states to determine uh, the way in which developments are regulated and how the environment's protected. And historically, in our history as a nation, modern Australia at least, things like the Great Barrier Reef, uh, the Tasmanian rainforests, um, the Antarctic, these sorts of areas have only really been protected by strong national laws. Uh, at the moment, they're in danger of being wound back. On the question of climate change more generally, it's not, we didn't have environment in the Constitution. And um, we need a more robust and more rigorous legal approach to dealing with all of these issues. We'll discuss some of that today. We've got better laws than most, but they need people to put them into practice. Great. Thanks, Peter. Now, Tim, from your experience on the ground in your long time of being concerned about biodiversity loss and, and habitat loss and uh, everything else you're concerned about, how do you think the law has really been effective or not in Australia? Well, look, I, I really agree with Peter that we do need a strong legislative framework to act within, and sometimes that legislative framework is sufficient. So, um, where you're dealing with a single point source of pollution and you can you can um, bring the force of the law to bear, I think it's great. But a lot of areas, such as species protection, it's it's not quite as effective, in part because it's a very complex problem to deal with, and society's reluctant, or governments are reluctant to make the um, investments that are required. Um, but I also think there's something deep about human nature with this sort of stuff, that unless we truly believe it's the right thing to do, we won't make those investments, we won't abide by the law. And, you know, I've, I've worked for a long time in Papua New Guinea and done some work with Aboriginal communities around Australia. And, you know, where those people, for them, the law is very effective because they believe that it is absolutely the right thing to do to follow the law and the consequences of breaking the law are serious indeed. And that's a belief-based thing. So I guess for me, what I try to do is to, is to try to work on at the societal level. So I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I think it's very important we have laws, but we also need a change in moral philosophy, a change in, in attitude about that. And the first thing I'd do if I was in government now wouldn't necessarily be legislative. I'd, I would just ask a simple question. What can we do to enhance our level of empathy as a society to those in need, to the environment and whatever. It's a question we never seem to ask ourselves, but it's so important, I think, um, because without empathy for the environment and others, we won't act. We, we won't obey the law. We won't get good laws in place. Peter, you're, you more than most people know how easy it is to do just what you want to do when you're in government. Uh, <laughs> really follow what you believe in. Uh, but, um, Tim, I just... Is law the thing that's going to let us increase that empathy and, and is law the right arena to be looking at for that kind of thing or is, is education more the area? Look, for me, it's, it's I, I should just start, some areas clearly the law is important um, and, and, and you, know, you can pass a law that will have a big impact. In other areas, when we come to broader environmental impacts, I do think a, a change in thinking and belief is really mm. important and, and the law will then follow that because it's what we believe is right. Okay. But until we get to that point, it's going to be hard. Yeah, can I just add quickly, I mean, if you look at the range of big uh, development proposals that are happening around Australia at the moment, particularly in Queensland and across the top end, each and every one of them is going to have some impact on the environment. And collectively, they could have a really big impact on the environment. And without national laws that set the standards high and strong accountability, either in the parliament from the opposition and, and from community groups and from the public and from all of us, then the laws that we've got, strong as they can be, won't be properly used. Um, I, I get what Tim's saying about empathy and certainly something I thought a lot about when I was in formal politics. And I think one of the things that we're really faced with is 
we've got to decide as people, whatever we're doing, whatever part of, of, of life we're working, whatever stage of our life's journey we're on, how are we going to make that contribution? You know, where are we going to make that contribution that we want to make? And I think that's what's going to be fascinating about our discussion today, Bernie, because we need to hold lawmakers accountable. Uh, I can say this as a former politician, you need to be held accountable. It's super important. If you just say, oh, it's, it's government, it's, you know, this is what Abbott does, I don't care, I don't want to know about it or whatever, and just let them go, then you won't see those immediate protections happening. At the same time, we need to think in a much more visionary way, a much more proactive way about other things that we need as well. You need to do all of these things together. Mm. And I think that leads in beautifully to um, asking Polly to talk to us about why she thought ecocide was something that was needed and, and really talk us through exactly what you mean by making ecocide a crime. Mm. And if I could just ask, just to give you um, a bit of an overview, we're going to be having this discussion for about 45 minutes, then I'll be um, asking for your questions. But we are being filmed the whole time by two cameras from the ABC. And just if you could, um, two things. One, always make sure your best side is showing. And the <laughs> other, if you can try not to come in the corridor down the middle, that would be great. It makes life a lot easier for the editors later on. So, sorry, Polly, can you please talk us through um, ecocide? What was it that brought you to that point? And talk us through what you mean about ecocide as a crime. Yeah, uh, well, you know, in a way, the whole evolution of how I came to a point of realising that what was required was an international law to, to stop mass damage and destruction was born of accountability, recognising that there was no accountability for significant harm, and empathy, actually. And this was really my deep empathy, my deep understanding of just how sacred life is and how deeply interconnected we are with the health and well-being of our planet and how, how it was that we have crimes that stop theft, that stop, that are used for when you know, one person hits another person and yet we don't have a crime to prevent mass damage and destruction. And it, it was actually one of those kind of light bulb moments when I was in Copenhagen up at the climate negotiations. I was speaking on a platform with uh, a fellow British journalist, a guy called George Mombio, when someone in the audience said, you know, we need a new language to deal with this mass damage and destruction. And it really was a light bulb moment for me. I found myself really thinking, yeah, you know, it's like genocide, only it's ecocide. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that not a crime? How is it that we have gotten to the stage in, in the development of civilization and we allow really enormous destruction to play out? And I'm not talking about wartime, I'm talking about peacetime here. How could that be? So what I did was I, I literally went down that rabbit hole of inquiry. I, I subjected the idea to rigorous uh, scrutiny, legal scrutiny. I went back to first principles. I looked at what our existing international crimes are, and they are genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. We also have a fourth one just recently uh, put in place, crimes of aggression, it's the run-up to war. And for me, it was a missing fifth crime. And what I did was I gave it legal definition. I, so ecocide is the extensive damage, destruction to, or loss of ecosystems. Now there are two types of ecocide at play here. One is human caused, so that is largely corporate activity. Not always, but mainly it's corporate activity. I, so if we are doing something that has a cumulative impact that causes significant harm, 
then it's about closing the door to that because if we're doing something that causes significant harm, then actually our health and well-being, our ability to live in peaceful enjoyment on this planet is severely compromised, is threatened. Now, the other side of it is the second type of ecocide is naturally occurring ecocide. So we're looking at ecosystem collapse on a large scale, rising sea levels, tsunamis, uh, enormous floods, anything that can put our territory at, at risk of extreme damage, destruction to a loss of ecosystems. Now, how does that work out in an international crime? Well, what it does is it imputes a legal duty of care at the very top end that overrides national legislation. So you can't have a government railroading existing legislation, just like we have genocide. You can't have a, na a nation deciding, well, actually, we're going to ignore that and we're going to legalize genocide. Amazingly, there were countries that had laws in place to allow genocide to happen before it was criminalized in 1948. But that's not to say that we've completely stopped genocide. Mm. No, neither have we completely stopped theft. But what we do have is legislation so that, in fact, it becomes the exception, not the norm. And when it does happen, that we can take action. And that's very important here, because this is about shifting normatives, uh, shifting our understanding. It's about embedding intrinsic values within law at the very top end. International crime acts like super law. It's a, a sort of supra-law of an umbrella of legislation that all other laws underneath it must accord to. So it's about setting new standards where we're putting the interests, the health and well-being of people and planet first and foremost. And that's very important. Now, some people sometimes say, well, truly isn't that anti-business? But it, it's not at all. This is really about creating the enabling legislation so that the problem can become the solution, so that dirty energy can become clean energy, for instance, so that there's a level playing field right across the world that ensures that governments prioritize by law and have to by law put the interest and the health and well-being of people and planet first, so therefore prioritize renewable energies, for instance, clean energy solutions, I, to ensure that carbon abatement programs are not just rolled back. I, so that there is a prioritising of where finance goes. I don't see a need for that. Goes. I think you've just not really understood our, our situation here in Australia. But do, <laughs> go on. Yes. Well, I haven't got a full grasp on the politics here yet. Um, <laughs> oh, have you got a I, year? <laughs> but I'm beginning to get a little taste of it over conversations I've been having and speaking with Peter and, and here with Tim as well earlier and other friends that I've met along the way. Uh, and I can see that this is a country that uh, isn't really putting the interests of people and planet first at the moment. Um, now, it may not be a country that moves first as an early adopter in all of this, but here's the interesting thing. With creating an international crime, all it requires is a simple amendment to a document called the Rome Statute. And all it requires is a two-thirds majority of those signatories. Actually, what that comes down to is 82 people in the world can sign this off as an international law. And it will fundamentally change how nations engage with business, with politics, with actually how we engage with the stuff of life, everyday life. It's also about triggering the green economy in a lot of ways. This is really about creating jobs in a very big way. This is not about closing down business, but it's about enabling business to, to really 
move in the direction of innovation that's required because of the security up. of this overarching legislation. Absolutely. Now, how far are you towards? So you've said all it requires is 82 signatures. Yeah. You've been working on this for some time. What yeah. stage are you at with the amendments to the? Yeah. A couple of years ago, I was invited by a group of nations to put together a concept paper. And I had a team then. I don't anymore. We ran out of money. <laughs> I, but Tim can help you out with that. He's great <laughs> well, with yeah, the social. I, I've been hearing. <laughs> you guys, I've got to hand it to you. That's fantastic. Mm. I'm really impressed. It, it really shows that there's deep care here. Well, well it's not us. It's all of those people out there who support us. Australians, there's a lot of Australians who really deeply care about this yeah. and are willing to put their money where their mouth is. And I have just been overwhelmed. It's been fantastic. But it's also because of the work that the Commission did and how great the information they put out and valuable it was. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So for me, this was really important because at the time I had a team, we could move very fast. We got out a concept paper to all governments in the world. Um, and out of that, over the last two years, I've been invited in by 54 governments, either at an ambassadorial level, um, minister of state level, or senior legal advisors to come in and legally advise as to how fast we could implement this, how quickly this could be put in place. What I've proposed is we can actually have the Rome Statute tabled for amendment next year. It is up for review. So there's absolutely no reason. Everyone is on notice now of this being a, a route map, a legal route map that we can take forward. And all it requires for it to be amended, to be tabled rather, for that amendment is for just one head of state to stand up and speak out and call for this. So. In fact, I'm talking to a group of, of nations that could take this forward as a, as a kind of group effort, which would be really fantastic. And when that happens, then the ball rolls very, very fast. And really, it's just a numbers game. It's just once you get up to 82 signatories, then it's signed off as international law. But also, I've, I've, I've proposed that we have a five-year amnesty period so that, in fact, we create the enabling conditions for countries, for business to turn around and be given all the assistance that's required here. This is not about closing down business. This is about really making business the big solution here in all of this and making it safe for business to move in into that direction. So they have a choice. But after five years, if certain businesses decide that they want to continue with dangerous industrial activity that's now deemed a crime, then they're held to account in a criminal court of law. And remember, it's criminal law, it's not civil law, so it attaches itself to individuals. And the principle in international crime is called the principle of superior responsibility. And that's those at the very top end who are making decisions that can have adverse impact on many, many thousands, if not more, of people down below. So this is an international crime that attaches itself to ministers, the decisions that are made for ministers, to CEOs, to directors, to investors, to those who decide what it is they want to invest in. If you decide to invest in something that's going to be deemed a criminal activity, then you can be held to account in a criminal court of law. But this actually helps ministers, <laughs> because as a, an ex-environment minister or an energy minister, there's huge pressure on ministers to do as business wants. And to be able to turn around and say, actually, we can't go in that direction because it's an international crime is very powerful. And to say we have to put in place a policy to support the innovation in the other direction. So this is something that will help those in government who, who really want to do the good thing but actually are stuck in a system that no longer works. Uh, maybe just to jump in quickly. Thanks, Polly. 
I don't think there's any doubt that we are going to need a range of measures that operate both internationally and nationally which strengthen laws to protect the environment. I think there are some really uh, tough challenges in what you're proposing, although I think that it is the next logical step to look at those questions through the prism that you are and what you're advancing. But I do want to make one thing really clear, not, not only um, because it's a job I had, but just so people do understand, under our current national environment legislation, a minister cannot and should not take into account anything other than the likely impact on the environment when he or she makes a decision. And so we're actually not, we're not permitted under the Act to go in and discuss it in the Cabinet and we're not permitted, a minister's not allowed under the Act to actually say, oh well, I think it's going to affect, you know, uh, let's just say the turtle population uh, of the Great Barrier Reef in Queensland, but uh, I think that it's going to generate a certain amount of income. You've got to look at other issues. And that's why, I, that's why I said it earlier on. I said, look, that law, it's not perfect, but it's quite strong. And it, and it came through at a time when environment consciousness was very, very high. And what... Uh, it, so just to repeat, it's a real danger for us to think that the law that we've got isn't worth hanging on to and arguing for and making sure it's followed, especially as it looks like the current government wants to go backwards on it. The other thing I wanted to say is something positive um, about the prospects for change internationally. And even though the sort of stuff that has been happening internationally around nuclear weapons sometimes seems to have been very slow, I look at how quickly, for example, a treaty to ban landmines came about. It happened in a re relatively really brief period of time. And now, as some of you probably know, there's a very strong push, uh, which I'm strongly supporting, for a new nuclear weapons treaty, which would essentially make uh, the possession and the use of nuclear weapons illegal in international law, against the Treaty of International Law. That's, yeah, it's a good thing. That's different, slightly different from what Polly's arguing for. She's arguing for another step. But I think these things going hand in hand, in tandem, and all of us holding one another to account on it, means that you've got some mechanisms for change. Just quickly, remember that uh, we take the Japanese to court, to the International Court of Justice for their so-called scientific whaling. And that decision, it's not a criminal decision, it's a decision that the court will make uh, an opinion clear. It's not the International Criminal Court, it's the International Court of Justice. But that happens, I think, in March or April. And I can tell you now, I'm freed from the constraints of, of the team player that I faithfully and honourably was, that arguing within government that we should take one of our major trading partners to court because of the way that they were allegedly treating whales in a scientific way when we knew it was nothing of the sort was a tough ask. But it can be done and it makes it a lot easier if there's a lot of public support for the issues that are on. Thanks for that, Peter. Um, I, I just said thanks, but thank you. Uh, um, I, now, I don't have a legal background, although I've pretty much watched every episode of The Good Wife. Uh, but what, my, so what you're talking about, Polly, that will in no way affect our national legislation. So we'll still, like, I mean, you're, you're just saying don't relax on, um, on holding our ministers to account just because Ecoside might be coming in. Well, I think the thing, I think the thing about the way in which uh, internationally laws are changed within the national framework is that some countries come on board and others do but very few countries, other than in the laws that Polly's referred to up to now, do actually say, well, uh, hang on a minute, we're not going to have our national laws at play, we'll accept the international law. And that's been quite a strong 
theme that happens here. There has to be a meshing. Mm. Under Australian law, we normally put international agreements into law in Australia so that they then become Australian right. law. Okay. Sorry about all this legal talk. I'll stop. No, it's Sunday afternoon. It's what everyone wants to hear. Uh, <laughs> um, Tim, I, I just heard the five-year um, amnesty. We're at 2014 in the critical decade and uh, this afternoon's talk is why and how the law and legislation must tackle climate change. Mm. doesn't sound like it's working very well on the timeline we need to face. Well, I'm not too keen on the five-year amnesty. Um, but I'd be interested, Polly, these are, these are new crimes. Have you thought about punishments? Have you thought about new punishments that might galvanise the community into action Hung, over this? Hung, drawn and quartered isn't new, but it's been <laughs> well, very effective. I don't know. I, well, we were talking about this <laughs> before we, were, we went on. We were. Because one of the very interesting things about the drafting of the law of ecocide, it's not just an amendment to the, uh, the international level. What that means is once it becomes an international law, then... Uh, those who are signatories to the Rome Statute, it has to be transposed into national legislation. And so the Ecocide Act is drafted up, and everything I do is open source. It's out there in the public domain. You can find it on the Eradicating Ecocide website. But a large portion of the Act deals with restorative justice, because at the end of the day, just locking someone up actually doesn't get you very far. I, it does come with the caveat, you have to take responsibility for the decisions you have made and, the, and the, the destruction that has been caused. But if you do take responsibility for that, then you can enter into a restorative justice process, which is really about what can we put back in. Um, it's one thing to cause significant harm, it's another thing just to walk away from it. So it's about how do we make good that which we have caused harm to. But Tim, you've got some pretty good ideas. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit... <laughs> for these particular sort of crimes, I must say I'm rather in favour of something like the Guantanamo Bay model. Blow the bloody national <laughs> legislation. We need a particular approach. And throwing people in jail never works. They're out of sight, out of mind. I mean, I had thought about hang drawing and quartering. I had thought of the stocks and people said it was barbaric. So I, th <laughs> I thought, why don't we just have a large clamp, a padded clamp that we can shove their posterior into and on a table beside it we'll have carrots of various diameters. And the judge might say, you know... More in sorrow than in anger, Mr. Smuts of Pollution Inc. I sentence you to seven centimetres. <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. Something I, that adds some liveliness to the well, event. Well, believing you from the Climate Commission we, really has well, opened the floodgates on free speech, Well, Tim. it totally has. I know, I know. But we can't go on as we are. We need a bit more innovative thinking. Is there? I just put it before you, Polly. I'd be willing to serve as your sort of... Um, carrot dispenser? Carrot dispenser. <laughs> Oh, there's a lot of frustration like being, <laughs> there is. being vented there. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry to bring, to bring a, 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 perhaps the wrong note to this whole discussion, but, <laughs> but we do need something that, that mm. is much more along the lines of, um, as you say, restorative justice and a bit yeah. of mental health for all of us too, perhaps, <laughs> you know, rather so than just locking people up. Is restorative justice about um, t financing the regeneration of the ecosystem, financing? Is it that kind of thing? Or? Well, in fact, he here's how it works with criminal law. You don't start with the financing. You start with what is required to be put back in place. And you decide what it is that's required, and then the money must flow to it. So you don't start from, okay, this is the number, this is the two million that's required. No, mm. you start with, first and foremost, what is required to be done here. So this is what's so very different from civil law. Civil law will look at damages and decide a, a number. But criminal law starts with what is the harm that mm. needs to be remedied. So it starts from the opposite end of the spectrum, and that, that's what's so very important here. Could I just ask you, Polly, in that regard, yes. with particularly climate change, you yeah. may have a 
corporation that has put a gigaton or two of carbon into the atmosphere, mm. we currently don't have any way of getting that carbon out. Yeah. So we'll be there for a century or we'll do damage for a century mm. as a proportion of the total yeah. carbon burden. How would you um, make good that sort of loss where you don't have a way of actually putting things back? Well, what is very interesting about the legislation of Ecoside is that it's it's coming from a different perspective on this. I, whether or not you have a company that has contributed to a, the atmosphere through carbon emissions is one aspect of bringing evidence to the table to show significant harm. I don't know if you know about the report that came out last year, the Carbon Majors Report. Uh, it lists 68 companies in the world that have contributed 60% of our carbon emissions over, I think, a period of the last 20 years or so. And, of course, as you can imagine, those 68 companies are energy companies, uh, uh, extractive industries on the whole. So with a law of ecocide, what you're looking at is, for instance, if you've got a company that is undertaking mining or heavy extractive, um, unconventional tar extraction is another good example. For the law of ecocide, you're looking to establish whether or not there has been extensive damage destruction to a loss of ecosystems. Now, how that's measured, the test that I proposed is a test that we use during wartime. It was put in place under the Environmental Modification Convention, and it's the size duration or, uh, size duration or impact test. It's, it's called a disjunctive test. So it's either or, it doesn't have to be all three made out. So you're looking at size, you're looking at duration, you're looking at severity of impact. Now, part of the evidence that can be brought forward to that can be, of course, the emissions. But also you're looking at what is the significant harm on the, on the land, on the territory here. So you look at mining, you look at uh, unconventional tar extraction, I mean, you can go onto Google Earth and you can see the damage and destruction that's been done there. You can measure it under the size duration impact test. Is it 200 kilometers of more of land that's been destroyed? Duration, amazingly, is actually quite short. Have you knocked out an ecosystem for a season or more? And when you're looking at ancient or boreal wetlands or forests, when you knock out an ecosystem for a season, then it's decades, sometimes centuries. In fact, sometimes longer that you've knocked it out for. I, and then the severity is really uh, the quantitative aspect and when you start to look at bringing in other evidence which may or may not be the greenhouse gases. But a law of ecocide is not determinative on that. That may be some evidence you're bringing forward. But remember this, with international law, it doesn't tend to be retrospective. Mm. And this, uh, this I, I, I do believe is a good thing because in truth, nobody comes to the table with clean hands here. It's about drawing a line in the sand and saying, okay, from here on in, we move forward. And this is why I talk about a five-year amnesty period, because as soon as a company knows that within five years this law is coming, you'll find that nobody will want to put finance into that project. Why would you want to finance something that's going to become illegal in five years' time? So it fundamentally shifts the flow of money very, very fast, and it then shifts very quickly decision-making in the boardroom because also you'll have shareholders saying, we, we don't want to go there, and you will have governments saying, sorry, but within five years, there is going to be no subsidy for what you're wanting to do here. It's very powerful. I think my, my Guantanamo Bay Star Chamber will be a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing, though, if, um, if 
considering the small proportion that existing and active corporations are going to be adding to the carbon dioxide levels, that means it will never be effective in addressing pure emissions because existing corporations are only adding the top tiny bit. Well, actually, I disagree with that because what you're seeing is with uh, ecocide, ecocidal activity at a corporate level, it's all about those companies that are contributing uh, excess greenhouse gas emissions. So what you're doing is you're fundamentally changing business overnight. Uh, you really are shifting dirty energy to clean energy uh, very, very quickly. So there is, there is a correlation there. Uh, destructive activity I is also something that contributes for with greenhouse gases. But it's not determinative of how you make out a law of ecocide. But also what you're doing is you're ch fundamentally changing the structure further down the chain as mm. well. So once you start taking out fossil fuel, you start taking out actually how we use transport. Um, instead, you're going to be looking at alternative s solutions. So whether or not it's, it's cars run on hydro or electricity um, or what have you, you're, you're going to fundamentally shift a lot of practices that flow from that. And for instance, secondary industries like plastic, that, that's a secondary industry out of the fossil fuel industry. And that will go. Bernie, one of the things that I was going to say is there was a very good discussion here yesterday um, about how quickly the solar market uh, is actually changing the way in which energy companies mm. will produce energy in the future. Other, in other words, away from um, dirty coal-burning energy to renewable energy, and particularly in Australia, obviously pretty well serviced by the sun. Um, I, I strongly, strongly support measures to look at increasing uh, governance and having really strong instruments to stop damaging the planet. I'm, I'm not quite as optimistic as, as Polly is about the way in which corporations are going to respond, only in as much as I think that in some nation states uh, they won't accede to this law, or not, not, certainly not willingly, not unless there's a strong groundswell of support for it, and including from, from lawyers and others, and also because there's already quite a lot underway uh, as people are essentially trying to transition in some countries and in some places and in some communities themselves out of high pollution into low pollution and, and, and low energy emissions um, industries. And I guess I'm a bit interested in, in exploring this a touch further because having experienced the frustration of seeing how long it can take in the international arena uh, for change to, to, to reach its course, and the whaling stuff's a pretty good example for us, it's something Australians took very seriously, and yet at the same time seeing how quickly if you do actually get a really strong groundswell of support on nationally, you can turn something around. And knowing that there are many industries that actually do want to take that journey. And this is an interesting question, isn't it? Because in some ways, the law can lead us here. But it's understanding and knowing how that that's going to work that's important. And I'm interested in the transparency dimensions, how it is that, that, that you know, those, the, the, the legal institutions actually do their job, as opposed to countries in international fora, and Tim, you've seen this in the climate change negotiations, essentially protecting their own interest, even in that international fora. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think another thing that you said, Peter, if I could just respond to, which is the pace of technological change and commercialisation of that change is now very rapid. So we've seen the price of solar go from $4.50 a watt, I think about four years ago, to 64 cents a watt now. No one predicted it. It was beyond mm. thinking about it. You know, in 2003, I'd been in South Australia four years by that time, there wasn't a wind farm in early 2003 in the state. Now 30% of the energy comes from wind. And we're facing a situation here where the old fossil fuel industries are slowly going under, particularly coal for domestic generation. Um, but the, the kind of issues that you highlighted around coal mines 
uh, around sorry, tar sands are very much true for our coal mines. We've got unremediated coal diggings, one of which recently caught on fire and has caused tremendous problems for a local community. Um, so the industries are going, going out backwards. Only half the utilities made any money last year. Um, getting them to one of their commitments to do remediation work is very difficult in that sort of situation. And as an immediate thing in Australia, I think that's going to be a, it's one we need to look at because otherwise we, will, as taxpayers, will be left to foot the bill for that remediation. Did you want to respond to that, Polly? Because I think, you know, how these laws will be enforced and how durable they are, because one thing that's been incredibly frustrating in Australia is, is the threat of laws being rolled back and the threat of changes to legislation <laughs> that undoes work that's taken a long time to get in place. So the kind of international law that you're talking about, enforcement and durability. Yeah. Uh, enforcement, of course, is hugely important here. And this is where the International Criminal Court comes into its own in a very big way. The, the ICC sits in The Hague, and it's a new court. It was put in place by the Rome Statute. The Rome Statute was, was drafted up in between the mid-80s and the mid-90s to codify the existing international crimes and put in place a, the International Criminal Court. It's only actually been up and running since 2005. So this is a relatively new beast that we have. I, it actually only has four courtrooms. So you could say this is a piece of essential hardware that's in desperate need of an upgrade. I, but this is the beautiful thing. We do have this hardware there. And this is the accountability mechanism at the top level, at the international level. So where a state fails to take action, it's called a court of last resort, where a, faith, a state either fails to take action or is unwilling or unable to take action, then the International Criminal Court can step in. Now, here's the thing. We didn't have an ICC until 2005. So we had all these international laws, genocide, war crimes, and so on and so forth. And before, what would happen is we'd set up situational specific courts. The Nuremberg War Tribunals were the first ever one. Uh, and there were a few after that. Rwanda is another example, Yugoslavia. But it was, it was decided that actually that's far too late to leave it until really huge disaster happens. And, and in the case of genocide, millions of people are, are killed. So this is really why the ICC was put in place, the recognition so that action could be taken before it gets to such a terrible state that it's too late. And that, that's truly crucial here. Now, I like I said earlier, you know, we still have theft, we still have genocide to a lim more limited capacity. Believe it or not, there is do documentary evidence to show that genocide numbers have dropped substantially ever since the ICC was put in place. But it is about changing our perceptions of, of what is right and what is wrong, what we accept as a normative within society, and what we decide is the overriding number one legal duty of care. Uh, and putting people and planet first over and above profit so that it is the number one consideration I, is a very strong indicator of actually how we prioritize various innovations and how we prioritize our decision making, um, not just at a global level but also at a local level. Mm.
Um, Polly, over the last few years, I've found it um, personally very difficult hearing about what's happening nationally, in particular in um, in uh, in the climate change arena, in legislation, and and at the um, COP meetings as well. And one thing that's given me great solace is each day reading Renew Economy, um, which is looking at the market of renewables, and it's actually we're getting a lot of good news from what's happening in the markets. And I have to say, we're Existing law has disappointed me. Markets have um, yep. have really given me yep. some hope that you know there is something beyond all the dire stuff we're hearing about. Um, how do you, you're the person driving ecocide to be declared a crime? How do you see that it on its own will achieve anything much, or is it more planning for down the track? And do we still need to be very much relying on on market um, market forces coming through and making a change and on individual action? Yep. I, well, I think market forces are very, very important, and in fact, this is legislation to help drive those market market forces even faster. But here's the thing: you know, how likely is this? Well, you know, I cannot square it with my conscience to walk away from this on the basis of ah, you know, it'll never happen. I I got to a place where I realised that I discovered a very fast track route for legislation, and remember. Every country can put in place emergency legislation overnight. And remember also, an emergency is just a state of emergence. It's the ability to allow something new to emerge. And it's about political will, of course, but whether or not we consider that we are in a state of emergency and we allow something greater to emerge here. So this is really a question of legacy for me. Uh, what do we choose to do in our lifetimes here and now that really can set, chart our route into the future in a very different direction? And what I'm doing, all I'm doing is just providing the legal pathway to get there that can really trigger enormous change in a very fast way. So this is a legacy issue for me. I, I genuinely believe this can be done. Well, I know it can be in law. This is not a problem legally, not at all. So this is about whether or not civilization's ready for it and how we create a public mandate so that we have leaders who are really brave enough to stand up and speak out and say, enough, this must stop. Now we put an end to ecocide and we draw a line there and we make it an international crime. I was feeling really confident until you said the bit about if we have leaders who are ready to say that. <laughs> but um, God, if that's the only thing holding us back. Uh, <laughs> um, now, it's about time to come to your questions, so please don't waste any time. We've literally only got a few minutes. Hey, Tim, Peter Ward here, nice to see you. Uh, I've done three years of deep reef work, Samoa, Fiji, Philippines, and every place because of deforestation, there's been great siltation, the deep reefs. Um, all of these people look at the Great Barrier Reef as the way things should be done, and yet we Americans here, you're going to start dumping silt. Can you speak to that, please? Sure, look, I think the Great Barrier Reef is one of the great national assets we have. The truth of the matter is that half of the corals on the reef are already dead from a number of causes. Climate change, part of it, a mismanagement, nutrients running off onto the reef. Um, I, I personally think it is going to be very difficult to preserve the barrier reef in a, a viable form into the future unless we address climate change this decade, now. Because uh, there are all these other threats, there's siltation and so forth that will exacerbate the situation and make the reef more vulnerable. But at the end of the day, unless we rain in emissions, it's going to be heat and acid that will kill the reef. And we can see that this is not some airy-fairy experimental thing. We can see it 
uh, by looking at situations with high ocean acidity and high temperatures. The corals just can't survive. So Peter, I, I, I agree, agree with you entirely. We've got to look at all of these options and deal with them vigorously if we want to have a reef into the future. It's interesting that uh, Tim just um, explained the barrier reef situation because it means I don't have to. Um, what I wanted to ask, I was going to use it as an example. There are multiple causes of the Great Barrier Reef degrading. Um, and uh, I'd be interested in um, probably um, Polly um, explaining how, if you've got a circumstance where no individual um, corporation or government is necessarily individually driving the action um, that causes the degradation, how does your um, how does your international crime work in that context? Yeah, this is a very good example. I, because again, this is getting back to the idea of the legal duty of care. So if you have a government that's failing to take action on that, then they could be held to account here on this. If, if you've got something that's playing out, you've got two things. You've got a naturally occurring ecocide, but also what's helping trigger it is human-caused activity as well. So this is about imputing a legal duty of care to ensure that steps are taken to abate and prevent any further damage from happening, whatever that, that requires. So that's also about corporate activity that's at an international level as well as at a national level. So what it does is it, it really concentrates decision making rather than walking away and saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it. In fact, it begs the question, what is required that we address here and now, not just at a, le uh, at a national level, but at within the international community as well? Uh, can I just add one thing to that quickly? I mean, people are really spot on to be asking questions about the Great Barrier Reef, because uh, I think it's in real danger. I'm not quite as pessimistic as Tim, although he's more knowledgeable about the climate impact, but most of the inshore reef degradation is caused by on land practices and there's a lot of money that governments have put in previously working with farmers and communities and Aboriginal people to try and reduce the amount of nutrients that are coming off the land and onto the shore. But the biggest challenge to the Great Barrier Reef now is Campbell Newman and uh, no one should be under any illusions about that at all. Um, I mean when Tony Abbott got elected he said Australia's open for business and the day after that, the Premier of Queensland said, and the Commonwealth will keep its nose out of our business and we'll do what we want in North Queensland and Queensland with the reef. That's our great national treasure, but it's also an international treasure. And Peter's question is absolutely spot on. It's actually one area where we have got fantastic laws in place, but making them work mm. is the key and holding people to account to make sure they work while we do the sort of things that Tim's been talking about are absolutely essential and urgent for us right now because the reef's in real peril. In regards to uh, initiating a policy and um, the five-year grace period, uh, I was wondering if um, the amnesty period was black and white or if there was going to be any graded response into helping businesses adopt your legislation. Because, you know, businesses that... Um, when they make different management protocols and they introduce it gently, it seems like there's a better uptake. And I was wondering if you incorporated that. Yeah, what is very interesting, uh, in fact, all legislation always has a grace period, a transition period. I, for instance, in Europe, we have European directives. They can have between six months and two years before they're implemented. 
So this is international law, and five years is, is well within the spectrum that's normally proposed. What happens is, is you get over that five-year spectrum. It's kind of, if you imagine a graph, you get the downsizing of operations uh, over that five-year period in one direction of those that will be deemed dangerous industrial activity, and you get the upsizing of the, the operations in the other direction. And likewise, you have the same with the subsidies that have been going in there, and that's mandated by law. So this is a very good example of the Barry Reef. You know, for instance, here, what Peter has just explained, is, which I didn't know because I don't know enough about the Barry Reef, is some of the significant problems that are causing the harm. So a law of ecocide, what it does is it creates the governance, the accountability to ensure that whatever it is that's, that's causing the harm is abated. And within that five-year transition period, is literally slowed down to a point of point zero. Um, now, that may require actually sitting down with farmers, what have you, um, and actually working out what is it that needs replaced, what is it that needs to be put in place to completely abate that within that time period. Now, for some people, they say, well, that's a long time. But for others, they say, that's an incredibly short time. Here's the thing. Business actually moves incredibly fast when they are faced with new legislation. Businesses have a natural desire to not just survive, but to thrive. Mm. And when you set in stone that this is your D-Day, then everyone turns around to concentrate on how we move to that direction. And because of that, in fact, what you see is a far faster movement and engagement around things than you would ever see by leaving it to just, well, how do we try to encourage more and more people to move in that direction? I'm very interested that there are very good laws here but it's the enforceability mechanism, mm. the accountability in a criminal court of law that really gives it its teeth, its legal teeth, if you like. Last time we saw each other on Kangaroo Island, I knew you'd met with Jared Diamond. I knew you had pretty much put everything aside, including the South Australian Museum as regards climate change. And my question was your emotional state and, and Jared Diamond's emotional state in the face is what was to come. And your answer was a one-word answer. It was despondent. So my question, uh, forgive me for being personal, but you're a person. What are your feelings now? Are they feelings of despondency, or do you have some hope towards the future? Well, Indiana, first, it's great to see you again. Really, really fantastic. I've still got your beautiful artwork in my house, so fantastic. But look, I, I'll tell you a story. Late last year, I was invited to go to Alberta to talk to the, to the provincial government about the tar sands issue. Afterwards, we had a dinner with the oil industry. I sat down with 30 oil executives and we had a bit of a, a roundtable discussion over dinner and I said, what is, what's the biggest problem for you guys into the future? And a grey suit, grey man in a grey suit just piped up at the end of the table, just said one word. He said, innovation. Innovation is that's the end. That's good. I thought he was going to say you. No, 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 not me. It's just innovation. And that's what gives me great hope. And Peter is so right that... I think if we are going to uh, uh, get on top of this climate issue, it's innovation, it's commercialisation uh, of new and clean alternatives that are going to make all the difference. So I'm much more optimistic than I was in 2005. Polly, may I ask you, what, where does people power come into all of this? How can we do something to support what you're suggesting here? Sounds fantastic. This really needs a public mandate. I get this from leaders that I meet all over the world. I, that the, the requirement to hear it from we the people, to, give, to create the enabling conditions so that those leaders can stand up and speak up safely and say, okay, I support this. So please help the, make this happen. I mean, in a way, all I'm doing is providing the legal pathway 
there are many things on the website, on the Eradicating Ecocide website, and suggestions as to how to take this forward. But in truth, this requires organizations, this requires people to take this further. I'm a great believer in letter writing. I actually writing to ministers, taking this into communities, and also using the word. It's not very well known in you know the Western world, so to say. I, whereas down in the global, global south, you know, ecocidio is very well known and well understood, and actually highlighting and saying, actually this is an ecocide, and one day this will become a crime, it fundamentally shifts the narrative around what we're looking at, and s understanding this could cause significant harm, and really we have a legal duty of care here, as trustees for the earth, to take this further forward, and stand up and say, enough, this must stop. So I do invite everyone to engage with this in whatever way and take it into your organizations and take it forward in whatever capacity that is. There are many NGOs who support what I'm doing behind the scenes, but they're needing to hear it from their members to take it forward and actually put it forward so that they can campaign on it. In truth, I'm not a campaign organization. It's gonna take so much more than just one lawyer uh, glad ragging around the world <laughs> talking about it to make this happen. So please do help in whatever way you can. Thank you. I'm terribly sorry we don't have time for more questions now, but I would like to give our panel um, some time for closing remarks. Well, Polly, I think you are the Wilberforce of our age, um, which is a great thing. You have brought forth an idea uh, of such fundamental importance to humanity that we can't ignore it. The tragedy for both you and Wilberforce was that it took a lifetime to get that idea accepted and propagated. So I, I am not optimistic that... that that, we, uh, that the crime of ecocide will prevent climate change because this decade is a critical one for that. But I do think that as we accept our responsibility uh, as human beings, as the intelligence of Gaia, the intelligence of the planet, and we, we see we are the motive force of this planet, that your, your idea is it is front and centre of, of where we need to be, of a new rationale for being, actually, of, of existence on Earth. So I thank you, and I think it's been a great pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, just, uh, I won't add a great deal of that other than say, yeah, look, thank you, Polly, for opening this up for discussion here and bringing it to this audience who are obviously really interested in what's going to happen in terms of lawmaking. It's a big part uh, of how we deal with the massive challenges uh, of restraining some of the damaging impacts that our activities are making on the planet. And just a reminder again, I know I've said it a couple of times, make sure that we hold ourselves accountable and those who are governing us now to the laws that we do have in place which are designed to protect the environment. Don't let them go backwards. If you care about it, and I know that everybody here does, then make sure that we hold people accountable for those laws now and have this discussion productively with you for the future. Nice try, Peter, but I'm not letting you off the couch before you answer this question. What the hell happened to you? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I want to know... I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> Peter, you, you've been on all sides of this. You trained in law, you've been an activist, you've been a lawmaker, you've been a legislator. Through all of those experiences, the tough hide you've had to develop, the, you know, the tongue-biting you've had to practice, do you, how much faith do you still have in the law? Uh, look, it's a really good question and the fact is that it's a part of it, you know, it's a part of our society and it's something which can be influenced by people. And I guess I came to the work that I did in politics recognising that I would go in and be a part of a team. I didn't agree with every single thing that the team did and people know that. But I brought a, 
a discipline of loyalty to that process, which I thought was very important. But I never lost my strong desire and real yearning to see us do a better job of looking after this place, not only for ourselves, but for everybody that comes along. And I think that laws have got their role to play, but laws in and of themselves are shallow, in as much as, as Polly said, it requires leaders to stand up for them, it requires law regulators to regulate them, and it also requires the civil polity. In a democracy, it's only as healthy as the people that hold lawmakers and lawmaking to account. And that's the most important thing of all. Because if you've got good laws or reasonable ones, you want to try and improve them, you sh we should do that. But we must hold lawmakers to account at a state level, at a local level and at a federal level. And I think they're important. If I hadn't had the power to make a law, for example, to stop a dam being built in Queensland, which would have affected the lungfish, the lungfish would now be probably extinct. I had the power to make that decision and I took it on the basis of environmental advice to me. That's using the law well. Now, you can't do everything that you want to do, but the law provides some framework for it. But ultimately, it's about us. It's about our heart, it's about our commitments, it's about the opportunities that we have in each of our lives to continue to do this work. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> and thanks to my supplementary question, you've now got 11 seconds. Polly, if there's anything you want to add? Well, I, I just want to say that I think really there's a common denominator here of deep care, deep care for people and planet, for the earth and where we're going. And for me, in all conscience, it, 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 I cannot step away from championing, putting my skills to best use here. I see myself as being in service to something greater than the self. And I get a very strong sense of that with you, Peter, and with you, Tim, and, and the many people that I've met over the last few days. And you know, I think it was Margaret Mead that said, you know, never forget that it only takes a committed few to change the world, and indeed, it, that's all it ever has. So here's the thing on Wilberforce. I don't think I'll ever become a politician. But he didn't have Facebook and he didn't have Google. We do. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, join me in thanking Holly Higgins, Peter Garrett and Tim Flannery.